What do you believe? I ran across some information this week that is interesting, and I think it's um, certainly demonically sourced, not the information itself, but, but what the information reveals is this uh, a spirit of unbelief, a spirit of the world that's finding its way or found its way substantially into the church. And there were some uh, statistics and things that I read that just blew me away. Um, here's one to start with. 51% of all churchgoers do not know the Great Commission. They, they don't know the Great Commission. When uh, there's, there's organizations, um, the Barna Group is, is the biggest one that does a lot of uh, uh, Christian church-related uh, polling and studying to try to understand the attitudes of the church and the perspectives of the church. And they uh, interviewed thousands of people, and literally barely half of the church even understands or knows what the Great Commission is. I mean, that's pretty scary, right? G- Jesus came for a purpose. He, he um, died for a purpose. He gave instructions with purpose, and that's the Great Commission. And if half the church doesn't even know what the Great Commission is, it's pretty likely they're not actually participating in it, right? So here's the Great Commission. You, you can find it in multiple Gospels, but the most commonly referenced is in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus speaking. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So it's, it's interesting. If he said everything but lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age, it would be a mission. But because he's with us, it's a commission. We don't have to do it by ourselves. We're anointed. His presence is with us. It's a commission. I said this a few times in the last couple of weeks. I'll say it again. The plan from before the foundation of this world to restore the lost world, humanity, back to God was to be done through God's son, Jesus Christ. That was going to be the way. Mankind would be reconciled to God through the son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus came. He did what he was to do here on the earth. He died. He was offered as a sacrifice for sin. He was resurrected ultimately ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven now. So how is God getting his plan accomplished from that point forward? Same exact way, through his son. Why? Because his son has a body, and his body is the church, and that's us. And if we don't understand the Great Commission, we're not going to be actually participating in it. And then God's son, Jesus himself, is limited by an ignorant or apathetic or whatever body that's not actually going about doing his business second interesting thing here is that the call is to make disciples, not converts. And, and, and there's a, I don't know, how, I don't know what to call it, but it, within the church there's a, there's a sense that the, the goal line is getting somebody to pray a sinner's prayer. And they've been, you know, uh, uh, rescued into the kingdom, and then you go get the next one and get them to pray a sinner's prayer. And pretty soon the objective is to see how many hands you can get raised up, how many people you can say prayed some prayer they, half the time, it seems like they don't even hear a presentation of the gospel, right? And it's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. So, so I think, you know, through the influence of the enemy and whatever, through, through man's pride and man's desire to be successful, we want more, not less. But we, we preach a gospel that's no gospel at all, and people respond to this no gospel, and we think they're in the kingdom and they're not. The goal is not converts. The goal is disciple. So anybody that thinks that, that I prayed a prayer, I got saved, I'm good, 
has played football. They caught the kickoff. They got to the 50-yard line, and they spiked the ball. The Lord says, no, that's the 50-yard line. The end zone is the goal, and that's disciple, not convert. So what does the disciple look like? My definition, you can find others that define it with different words, but it's basically the same thing. A disciple is a learner, a follower, an imitator, and a replicator. So the first word is a learner, right? You've got to know something. If you don't read your Bible... Heaven, you know, forbid that we, the only spiritual food we eat is a sermon on a Sunday morning or, or some YouTubes. You have, to, you have to feed yourself on the Word of God to be a learner. And then the, the, the other three almost are, are synonymous, follower, imitator, replicator of what? Of Jesus. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are his disciples. And, and that's the way that we should be conducting our lives. Uh, scripture says that, that whoever would, would name the name of Jesus. So as a Christian, I would name for myself the name of Jesus. It says, I ought to walk like he walked. My, uh, one of my Bible dictionaries describes a disciple of Christ as one who believes in his, Jesus' doctrine, rests on his, Jesus' sacrifice, imbibes Jesus' spirit, and imitates his example. So, so that's the call of the Great Commission. 50% of the people that are regular Christian churchgoers don't even know about the Great Commission. That's pretty scary. Matthew 20, uh, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 read like this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough, it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. It's interesting that there's two words used for both roles in that scripture. For the, the one who, who would be followed is teacher and master. For the one who would be us would be disciple and slave. It, it helps us to get a picture of the relationship that we have between us and Jesus. He is the one that we would be disciples of. It's Jesus that we would want to emulate. It's Jesus that we would want to come to know. We would, we would want to come to know him because he's given us his very word to teach us about him so that we can understand him, we can understand his character. He's demonstrated himself here when he came to earth and was manifest in the flesh, and then he's anointed others to teach us about his ways so that his word, inspired by God, written down by inspired people, we have it as a guide. But we're also slaves to his master. And a lot of people don't like that. They don't like the thought of slave because in America we have a bad connotation with slave. But the very best we could ever hope to be is a slave to Jesus Christ. If, if we were literally saw ourselves as slaves, that we have no, no um, will of our own, that we are completely owned by somebody else, that, that, that we only would do what that person would have us to do, our witness would be awesome. That was Jesus, right? I mean, he, he acted like a slave. When he came, he said, I don't judge anything. I know my judgment is correct because if there's something to be judged, I say, Father, true or false, right or wrong. And then I judge as I'm told. I don't have any judgment of my own. I don't have any will of my own. I speak only that which I hear my Father speaking, and I do only that which I see my Father doing. He was, he was really a disciple of his Father when he came to earth. Two quick scriptures about that word slave. Romans 6.22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. There, there's some 
necessity to, to being enslaved to God that will actually bring us to deriving our benefit, resulting in sanctification and ultimately the outcome of eternal life. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So we are enslaved to God. We should think of ourselves that way. Now, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean we can't have a, a father relationship with him. But we have to understand that, that our will, if it ever were to depart from his will, has to be put down as a slave would put down his will to his master, right? That we aren't our own. Like, I don't own me. God is very gracious. He allows me to do what I want. But I have to understand, I don't have ownership of me. I've been sold for a price. The blood of Jesus was the price that I was sold for. And, and who sold me for that price? Me, right? If you're born again, you sold yourself into, into bond slavery. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ. What you got was an eternal reconciled relationship to God. And what he got was you. Not for the purpose just of being saved, but for the purpose of being a disciple that goes about his business now for the rest of your earthly life. In, in many ways... In many ways, the church has not heeded that scripture. The, the church, this is Jesus and this is the church. The church wants to be a student above its teacher, and it wants to be a slave above its master in many ways. So, so the, the, the teacher, the master, has, has ways that he's, that he's taught us and he's given us, but the church says, nope, I want my own ways. What, what's, what's the word that we use for that? It's, it's a P word, Pride. It's pride. That's, that is the essence of biblical pride, that, that I will be God, right? What happened in the garden? Don't you know that if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God? Wouldn't you like to be like God? Wouldn't it be nice to be a little God all to yourself? And that, that pride manifests itself. Here, here's an example. Whole entire denominations will ordain ministers, deacons, elders, bishops, that are openly practicing homosexuality. And, and when the scripture says that that's an abomination to God, that, that, that it's, it's contrary to his will, yet they say it's okay, what have they done? They're a student that's placed themselves above their teacher. They're a slave that's placed themselves above their master. They say, it's okay what you say over here, and, and I'll surrender to that. But this stuff over here... I'm not too interested in doing that. So you're just going to have to surrender to me and I'll live how I choose to live. That, that's not the gospel. There is, there is no repentance in that attitude. If there's no repentance, there's no salvation. Scripture says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. One of, one of those ways of describing unrighteousness is homosexuality. I, I hate to pick on homosexuality, but it's, it, it, when you're openly homosexual, it's easy to see versus somebody who's a liar or an idolater. It, it's hard to see that. But when the church says we embrace this particular sin, it's easy to see, and it's a great, easy way to make an example. In Titus chapter 1, it reads, For this reason I have left you in Crete. So this is Paul the Apostle to Titus, who he sent to Crete to, you know, finish establishing the churches there. 
I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach. So these, these are the characteristics that he's to find in people he's going to put in places of leadership in the church in Crete. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not found of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So the person that that uh, Titus is looking for, the people in Crete, are people that are above reproach. Oh, sorry, you know, you have poor character. You didn't do this. You did, you know, you, you can't be an elder yet. You've not yet been proven to be above reproach. A husband of one wife, not the husband of one partner, right, of a wife. In the context is a woman, husband of one wife, loving what is good, devout, holding fast to the faithful word, exhorting sound doctrine, and refuting those who contradict. So, so when churches rise up in rebellion to God's word, in pride, putting themselves above God, then the rest of the church, it demands that they respond. They have to respond to that. Some more of these statistics that I saw. 19% of Christians say they read the Bible every day, and only 20% report thinking about biblical truths throughout the day. All through the Old Testament, Israel was instructed to, to make memorials and monuments, and, and there's a pile of rocks here and a pile of rocks here. And every time you walk by there with your kids, you, your kids, you talk about what that means. You continue. You keep God's commands fresh, always on your lips, fresh in your mind. I mean, they would wear little little boxes on their foreheads to Pharisees. I can't remember what the word is, but they wear these little boxes so that they were constantly, constantly, constantly refreshed in God's word. But only 20% of Christians Christians say they read the Bible every day, or 19%. And only 20%, roughly the same percentage, report that they spend any time pondering on the truth that, that would be found in the Bible. Only 17% of Christians who consider their faith important and attend church regularly, regularly actually have a biblical worldview. 17%. So out of, uh, if there's a church with 100 people, 17 of those 100 people, people that say that their faith is important to them, it, it's, a, it's an important thing in their lives, and they come to church on a very regular basis, only 17 out of 100 that are like that actually have a biblical worldview. So, so when, when you know, the culture says A and the scripture says B, their worldview is A. They're, they're agreeing with the world. They're not agreeing with the scriptures. Another study found um, regarding church-going Christians, right? Not just, you know, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah. Ever been to church? No. You know, if Jesus fell out of the sky and landed on your head with a cross in his hand, would you know who he was? No. Not those folks. Regular church-attending people that would consider themselves Christian 61% have views that are rooted in, in new spirituality, like new age kind of stuff. 54% resonated with postmodernistic views. So postmodernism is this, this philosophy that's, that's come forward in the last few decades, I think. But an example of 
of postmodernist thinking would be there are no absolute truths. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, a person with a postmodern perspective will say, no, you are one path of many paths to God. That, that would be, there's no absolute truth. The soul that sins must die. Well, you know, that's what you believe, but that's not true. I mean, there's no absolute truth. Well, the Bible is only absolute truth. It's not relative truth. It's not relative to how you feel about it. It's not relative to it hurts your feelings. It's not relative to you don't like to agree with it. It's true. That's it. And if you're a Christian, it's true. So if you're a Christian with a postmodern kind of perspective on life, guess what? You're probably not a Christian because you don't hold the facts of the Bible to be true to you. If one's not true, any can be not true. 29% held secular views, like separating you know, the, the world versus the church, and 36% had ideas that were grounded, like their, their philosophical ideas were grounded in some form of Marxism. Not Jesusism, not Godism, not Bibleism, Marxism. See, the young people... No offense, young people. I'm still a young person. Till I'm the oldest guy living, I'm a young guy. Somebody say amen to that. Thank you. Young people, they're trying to search out who they are. It's tough being young. You know, when you're a teenager and, and you're trying to sort out who you are and you get rebellious against your parents, which, you know, there's young people in here, don't do that. But because you're trying to figure out who you are. And all these influences, all these influences in the world are trying to draw them away from God. The world wants to draw them away from God. And they make a case that makes sense. They make a case that's like tolerant. And Christians are intolerant. You've got to decide what's true. And then you've got to stand on it. Because if any of it's not true, any of it can be not true. You can pick whatever you want to be not true. <laughs> this one hurts. Another survey, this is a Barna survey, found that only 51% of senior pastors in Protestant churches hold a biblical worldview. And, and their comment says Christians and their leaders don't seem to know what the Bible teaches. That's one of my favorite Francis Chan. I don't know if you ever listened to Francis Chan, but Francis Chan, pretty good Bible guy. And he'll speak to stuff like this, and, and he'll hold up. He's like, does anybody read this? Does, does anybody actually read this? How can you think how you think and read this at the same time? It, they're just incongruous with one another. Last of my little statistics here. Another survey regarding you know Christians. Only 58% of Christians believe that Satan exists. Big deal or no big deal? It's a huge big deal, right? If you don't believe Satan exists, then, then Leviathan's just a myth, right? And, and the fact that we, people are just having all kinds of problems are just you know, personality conflicts or who knows whatever, and there's no way to deal with them. If, Satan, if, they, if the world can get you to believe that Satan doesn't exist, you don't have an enemy. But Scripture says he prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Only 52% of Christians believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. I was almost going to ask you this question, but I thought that would be mean. A person, that, so 48% of Christians believe that Jesus probably had a sin. You know what you call people like that? Lost. You, I mean, they're lost. A, a, a Christian that believes that Jesus was a sinner is not a Christian. Because 
the foundation of the gospel is that he was a sinless, perfect, spotless lamb of God offered on behalf of the sin of mankind. But if Jesus just had some little bitty sins or whatever, guess what? He wasn't an acceptable offering. You need to go slay a goat until the real Messiah comes. If you believe that Jesus had sin, you're not a Christian. People say, well, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of just your opinion. I'm like, well, okay, but read the book. Yeah, go to heaven. Only 47% of Christians believe that absolute moral truth exists and is found in the scriptures. So when Jesus says fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, does he mean it? But, but, what, but what about if I love my, I almost said boyfriend. I could have killed two stone, two birds with that stone. <laughs> what, what if I love my girlfriend? I mean, and we're in a committed relationship. I mean, seriously, that's not necessarily immoral. It's no different than married people. We're just not married, right? 47% of the church will hang their hat on that. Why? Because they want what they want. Well, guess what? Heaven isn't going to be that way. That's why God's like, he's not like that because he wants to be mean. He knows what's good and he knows what's not. And he's holy and he's perfect. And his heaven is going to be like it's going to be. It's not going to have sin in there. This one kills me. Most Christians, most, it doesn't have a percentage, most Christians. Think about this. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and wide is the path that leads to destruction. And many will follow the wide path. And only few, it says only few, will follow that narrow way that leads to life. Most, sounds like wide, right? Most Christians surveyed also said that it was possible to earn your way into heaven. Most can I tell you what you call a person who believes they can earn way, their way into heaven? Lost. Amen. They're lost. Read Galatians chapter 6. As soon as you take on circumcision for the purpose of earning your salvation, of earning righteousness, you have been severed from Christ, you've fallen from grace, and Christ is of no value to you. A Christian that believes that they, they bring any goodness to the equation of their righteousness before God is not a Christian. <laughs> Told you I had this scripture in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The, the message of the cross is the gospel, and it is what it is. It's not, it's not ten gospels. It's not nine gospels. It's not... This part that's okay, but this part is offensive to me. The gospel is what the gospel is. It stands on its own, and God is just fine with somebody calling his message foolish because those that will be foolish in that way, in his wisdom, will come to know him, and they'll have eternal life with him. But those that think it's foolish and they, they won't humble themselves to the truth, they're going to stand before the Lord, and they're going to be judged. 
honestly, I, I made a note here. It, it, it's like, check yourself. If God's word is foolishness to a person, it's probably a good indication of their eternal relationship with God. If it's foolishness, if somebody says, well, that's just silly, you know, God this or God that, it's like, you probably have a good indication of somebody that doesn't actually have a reconciled relationship with the Lord. Let me give you some, um, some warped truth that's in the church. I mean, and, and I have experienced all of these from church people, okay? First one is God's love. And the comment would go something like this. I don't believe a loving God would send good people to hell. Have you ever heard that one? Oh, yeah. And probably from not church people too, right? Okay, so let me just, let me just give you a few uh, things that are wrong with that statement. First thing is, I don't believe. <laughs> what a person believes is countless, pointless. It has no value. What has value is truth. If a person believes that they can fly and they stand at the edge of a cliff and in their faith, they jump off the cliff and start wabbing, flapping their arms, guess what? It turns out that that wasn't true. And the, the thud that you hear a minute later is evidence of that, right? It only matters that you believe what's true. Well, it might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Guess what? Postmodern thinker. True is true. False is false. Guess what? Boys are boys and girls are girls. And some people don't know in their mind who they are. And man, they should be loved and helped, but... For the whole culture to say, well, okay, there's no such thing. Tomorrow I'm going to be a girl. Today I'm going to be a boy. You know, who knows what I'm going to be the next day. It's just not true. Second thing, God wouldn't send good people to hell. Truth is, good people don't go to hell. Isn't that nice? Good people go to heaven. Here's the mistake in that thought. They think they're good people, Right? The fact is, there are no good people. What's the standard of good? God himself. Good job. Amen. The perfect holiness and righteousness of God is the standard at the gate of heaven. Walk to that gate. Your righteousness will be seen. If your righteousness is equal to that of God's, they will welcome you in because you are a good person and you get to go to heaven. The problem is you're not. So then what we do is we don't have that standard. We have our own standard, right? And, and I want the standard to be good enough for me to get in, right? So it's got to come, well, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, very, very low standard. But you're okay if you meet my standard, and you're okay. And God, he loves us. So he would not send good people like us to hell. Guess what? He would because you're not good. Well, hey, wait a minute. That's a third thing. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People are presented with a choice. When you share, Nancy, when you share the gospel with her, when you share the gospel with her, guess what? They're going to be presented with a choice. Do you want God? Do you want to go to heaven or don't you? If you want to go to heaven, here's how you go. First, you recognize you're a sinner, you've rebelled against God, and you make the conscious decision to repent from your sin. Second thing you do is you recognize that an offering has been made for your sin and you trust that that offering was sufficient that would be the shed blood of the Lamb of God, perfect and holy without sin. And when you meet those conditions, then you, you get to go to heaven. But if you say, well, I, I'm going to be the master of my life, so I think that I will trust that Jesus did what he did, but I'm going to be the one who decides what I do with my life. Okay, you, you won't go to heaven. 
well, why won't God let me in? Because you don't want to. Because this is how you get in, right? That's how you get in. If the doorknob turns to the right and you want through the door, you turn it to the right and the door opens. You turn it to the left and the door doesn't open. You've got to decide what you want. God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell because they choose not to want God. Romans 3, 10, 10, 10 to 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. When you see that lady that you love so much, Eileen, that's her right there. By my standard, your standard, great neighbor. I enjoy living next to her, great person. But that's not the standard that she's going to have to stand to. And the only way she'll get in is if she's perfect as God is perfect. And the only way she'll be that is with the imputed righteousness of Jesus himself. And, and no one likes, that's why they say the gospel is offensive. It is, because when you describe somebody as that, they don't like it so much. Except it's true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the motivation. God does love. It's, it's motivating. The motivator of salvation is love. But the mechanism is faith. And faith is expressed through repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ. Nobody gets to go because of God's love. They get the opportunity to go because of God's love. But they have to respond. Okay, here's the last one. Next to last one. <laughs> the second one, grace. Have you ever heard this one? You, you, you see somebody and they're in some kind of crazy sin behavioral thing and, and you say, whoa, you know, aren't you a Christian? And they say, it's okay. God knows my heart. The truth is God does know your heart. <laughs> and if you knew your heart, you wouldn't say it's okay because your heart is deceptive and the flesh wants what the flesh wants. So, so we take grace, this amazing expression that God has towards humanity, and we make it to be what we want it to be. It's okay. You don't understand God's grace. He knows my heart. No, no. The fact that you're living like this is an indication of your heart, and God's not okay with that. Grace isn't a license to sin. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Licentiousness is a big word. It's like when, when you go to the Secretary of State and you meet all the requirements, they give you a driver's license. Now you have a license to drive a car on the roads within the boundaries of the law in the state of Michigan, I guess in the whole of the United States. Canada even extends that license into there, right? You don't have a license to exceed the speed limit, you don't have an, a license to drive recklessly and carelessly. You don't have a license to go through red lights or through stop signs. You don't have a license to run people off the road when they make you bad. See, that's what's happening with grace. People want their driver's license to let them drive however they want. Both sides of the road, this way is a little shorter. It's a one-way street, so what? There is no license to sin. 
but there's grace for somebody who stumbles in a sin for God to cleanse you of all unrighteousness when you confess your sin. That's grace, but no grace that makes sin okay. The third example that I wanted to use this morning is um, the theory, not the proven fact, the theory, the religion of evolution. Have you ever heard this one? I can be a Christian and believe in evolution. Christians can believe in evolution. Genesis one twenty seven says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if that's true, then I would have to posit in my mind that, that God evolved from something different than God because we were made in his image and, and we've evolved from from, I don't know, chemicals that got struck by lightning, the waste of a spaceship that emptied its septic tank on the earth gets hit by lightning and all the right stuff happens and then you've got some form of life that evolves ultimately to be a human being. Who knows, you know, 10 billion years from now what it's going to be like. That's not what the Word of God says. So a Christian who says, I believe in evolution, is denying their creation. Well, couldn't God have created me and evolution got me like this? No, because it says he created man in his own image. Isaiah 45. You know what? I have this in the wrong translation. You don't have it in the right one. I'll just read it. Isaiah 45, 9. What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? I mean, just see how stupid that is. God, seriously, this is the best you could do? Evolution got me here. Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? And you see uh, in uh, the New Testament as well, Romans chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault, he being God, for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? No, because we are made by God. So then what's the real problem with someone who says that I believe in creation when you acknowledge creation versus evolution? The problem is it shapes your perception of your relationship to God. If I believe that God created me, that he made me from his materials, he's sovereign, I'm the I'm the pot. He's the potter. He could make me how he wants. Then I have a certain subordinate relationship, right? Ashley and Tanya and Annika, this doesn't work so good for, but Ryan and Joe, it does. We created them, right? I brought you into this world. I can take you out of this world if I want to, which wouldn't be very godly. But the point is that I have a relationship with Ryan that he can't ever have with me because he didn't create me. He's never been my father. I will always be his father. He could be smarter than me. He could make more money than me. But that relationship will never change. If you think that you evolved, then you have no beholding to God as your creator. You came from just by chance, like everybody else came by just from chance, and your relationship to God is going to be shaped by your perception of evolution versus creation. It's a really big deal to think that evolution is okay in the sense of Christianity because it, it demeans God. I don't know, it raises up chance, I guess. I don't even know what it raises up. But it, it, it damages our understanding of who we are relative to God. 
I'm near to done. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Whose mind is that? It's God's mind. Whose judgment is it? It's God's judgment. When we have differing minds, differing thoughts, we go here and we see what's the right mind and what's the right thought, and then we come into agreement here. That's the next one. Romans 15, 5 and 6 Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So, me and Keith, we we have a different mind. There's only only three possibilities in in our different mind, right? Keith's right and I'm wrong. I'm right and Keith's wrong. What's the third one? We're both wrong. That's right. It can only be those three. We can't both be right because we disagree, but we can both be wrong because we might both disagree with what the word says. So when we have a dispute, we just go right here because the mind that we're to agree in is the mind of Christ. What does he say? End of discussion. Keith happened in this case to be right and I was wrong. He agreed with Jesus and I missed it. Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or test and approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The world is continuously trying to conform us to the way it thinks. It does it in TV shows. It does it in movies. It does it in advertising. It does it in culture. It does it every imaginable way to try to get us to think the way it thinks. We have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. How is our mind going to be transformed? In his word, in his presence. When, when, when you sit and you pray and you ask God, Lord, I'm struggling with this whole thing of creation versus evolution. It's because you've been indoctrinated into evolution. Lord, change the way, renew my mind, transform me, Lord. Give me scriptures, ponder the scriptures, and, and you'll be different. If you'll surrender yourself, the the Ephesians 4 scripture says this, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, the truth. See, there's a spirit that wants to influence our minds. There's a whole bunch of them. One of them's name is Leviathan. He wants to get me to think bad things about you. He wants me to see you talking to somebody else and think you're talking about me and saying something bad. And that's the thought that I'll have. Not you, because I I don't know you as anything but perfect. But seriously, that thought, that thought in my head that's Leviathan sounds just like Pat Brady, exactly like Pat Brady. But I have to know what the Spirit of God says. This is the Spirit of God speaking. He gave it to Paul. He gave it to Peter. He gave it to Moses. He gave it to all of them. And they wrote it down. They didn't have a choice. They might not have understood it, but it's God's voice in here. So when I have these thoughts, I have to say, well, wait a minute. Ooh, any speculation that rises up, any whispering, any gossiping, any this, any, no way. I cast that thought down. I cast this thought up. I have to be renewed in the spirit of my mind. What spirit is speaking to me? Does it stand obedient to Jesus? If not, it goes down. Matthew five thirteen. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. When, we, when, when a Christian starts to take on postmodern philosophical doctrine thinking, they're losing their saltiness. They're becoming unsalty salt. Somewhere else it says more than just trampled. It's not even, it's not even good for the dung pile. Your, your saltless salt, flavorless salt is so worthless that if you put it on somebody's poo, the poo gets worse because of the salt. I mean, your salt messes up poo. Poo's about the most worthless. Well, it's not that much. I guess it could be fertilizer. But, you know, to me, if you gave me anything and poo, I'm picking anything first, right? And if somebody puts flavorless salt on the poo, it's worse poo. I don't mean to make light of this. I think maybe I'm doing it, but I don't mean to. Proverbs 23, yeah, it's already, yeah, that ship left the port a minute ago. Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks within himself, as he reckons within his soul, so is he, or so he is. So if we allow ourselves to ponder and reckon things, well, hmm, that's an interesting point. I used to tease people. I'd say, hey, you know, in Psalm 27 and 14, do you agree with that scripture? They'd say, well, hang on, let me look. And I'd say, got ya. Of course you agree with it. It's scripture, right? You're not going to go and judge it. Oh, no, no, I don't agree with that one. I agree with these other ones, but I don't agree with that one. It's a trick, right? The minute we start to reckon things that disagree with what we know to be true, they start to find place in us. And then once they find place in us, they, they become how we think. How we think becomes how we behave then our witness is junked up. Okay. Being a disciple is rooted in what we believe. To believe like the world, yet call ourselves Christian, is incongruous. It doesn't line up. It's just not true. Christians believe God. They don't believe the world. Having a Christian worldview starts with making a decision. I can't be a Christian if I don't believe that there's a God. If I believe there's a God and I believe that he created, and I, and I have some sense for what the, the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures would teach me, it's not that hard for me to make a decision that what he says is above what the world says. And I'm going to decide to believe it. When, when somebody wants to, to mess with me and say, you mean to tell me you believe the guy lived inside a fish for three days? I say, dang right. Three days inside that fish. Spit him right out. But that's stupid. To you, it's foolishness. But to me, who's being saved, it's truth. Why? Because God said so, and I trust it. And I hang my hat someplace, I'm hanging my hat there. It starts with a decision. It continues with pressing in, because it is a little hard to believe some guy lived in the belly of a fish for three days. But I continue to press in. I continue to read God's word. I continue to pray. I continue to ponder. And now, it's not at all difficult for me to believe God's word. It's not something that's hard for me to decide. We have been and are being indoctrinated by the world. We need to resist it. Scripture says, come out from among them. Don't touch what is unclean. Cleanse yourself of all defilement of soul and spirit. That's what it's talking about. If we aren't careful, if we won't come out from the world, if we won't cease to touch those things that are unclean, they will defile us. And that's what defilement looks like. Well, you know, God loves me and he understands my heart and all that kind of stuff. You get defiled because you listen to things that aren't true. They got to be put down. We can't. I use this in the sense of uh, 
of soaking in the Holy Spirit, but, but it, it applies here too. If you have a cucumber, right, a cucumber, and you want a pickle, you can't just wish the cucumber to be a pickle. You can slice and put on your burger, and it's still going to be a cucumber. But if you put it in this pickling fluid, right, and you just dip it in and dip it out, that's what Sunday church is to a Christian, right? Somebody, that their whole interaction with the, the fluid, which is God, in his word, in prayer, in worship, is a Sunday morning, it's like you got dipped into that stuff and you came out. If somebody gets their mouth on you after church, maybe even Monday sometime, they might taste a little Jesus on there because you're still wet. But nothing got through the surface. If you leave yourself in the presence of God, in his word, as you pray, then he gets to permeate and and he gets inside. And then when somebody tastes you on Friday or Saturday, guess what they taste? They taste Jesus. Because when they bite the inside, they get the same as what's on the outside. That is exactly true in the opposite sense. If you want to pickle yourself in that TV, if you want to pickle yourself in, in worldly music and, and, and movies and things that glorify sin, guess what? You're going to just taste exactly like what you've pickled yourself in. And, and that's the challenge for us. And that's the reason why the church is the way it is. That's the reason why half the church thinks Jesus was a sinner. It's the reason why half the church thinks that they can be righteous on their own because they pickle themselves. I'm ready, Daniel. I should have been ready 15 minutes ago. Sorry. I shown off for somebody. Just kidding. Oh, the offering. Thank you. <laughs> um, I don't even see the baskets. Okay. Let me just finish, and then I want to pray a minute, then we'll take the offering. You've got to decide. You've got to decide what you're going to believe. You've got to decide who you're going to be a disciple of. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that a person who thinks they can have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world has both feet in the world. Literally, both feet in the world. We're not called to be of this world. We're in this world. Jesus said that, that we're going to be in the world, but we're not going to be of the world. And we have to make a decision because, see, a junked-up witness that looks like the world, we might think it helps to draw people to Jesus, but you're not drawing them to Jesus. You're drawing them to someplace else. It's no better than a false gospel if we live our lives in in ways that are inconsistent and our, our minds are set to things that aren't true from God's perspective. So, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that Jesus is absolutely sinless, that he was a perfect and acceptable sacrifice for my sin, for the sin of the world. I thank you that I know that because he was resurrected on the third day, just like you said he would be, just like he said he would be. The wage of sin is death. If he had any sin, he'd still be in that tomb. I pray by your mercy and your grace that each and every one of us would surrender ourselves as living in holy sacrifice is unto you as our spiritual service of worship in every aspect of our being. We cleanse ourselves of all defilement of soul and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God and that we truly will be salty salt, Lord, that preserves this world as it's going to be saved as people hear the gospel. We pray it over us in Jesus' name. And Father, I thank you for your provision. I thank you that through the riches of glory in Christ Jesus, everything we ever need, you provided for us. That's always been true. It always will be true. I declare that provision over Jim, 
and Heather and the Idoni family for the next three that they're going to bring as they, as they practice pure and undefiled religion, Lord. So, Father, we say thank you. We ask your blessing. We ask your multiplying power. And we ask your convicting spirit for how to spend it.